I am a human being and I killed human beings. I kept the, uh, the mummified head and skull of one of the victims. That huge break. Police say they now have the killer in custody. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. On today's show, we deep dive into the science of profiling. We learn about the history of profiling and how it is applied today. And we look at a case study in profiling as we discuss the Johannesburg mine dump serial murderer. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. My name is Paul Llewellyn. I am a journalist curious to reveal the truth behind the killers and the criminals who stalk our streets. Joining me to reveal these incredible stories every week, Jared Labaskachny is the former cop who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Great to be here. What exactly is profiling? And uh, what is a profile? Yeah, I mean, the word profile or profiling is something that people bandy about and it has lots of meanings, and that's part of the problem because we all think we're talking about the same thing. Um, the way we kind of look at it is that it's 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 an investigative aim aid. It's it's not the thing. It's not the the, the golden you know goose that's going to lay the golden egg to solve a case necessarily. So it's an investigative aid. Um, but the starting point often is people like I said. What 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 is profiling? So. There's two ways we look at it. Um, on the one hand, you can say, what is a profile? In other words, this piece of paper that I'm giving a detective that's hopefully going to help them. And that's really a report that looks at who committed this offense. Why do we think they committed this type of offense? What can we um, predict about the person's behavior? And if we ever get to interview the person, what would we want to ask? What do we think their background, et cetera, et cetera. So it's about this unknown person who committed a crime that has more of a psychological motive. So um, we'll get into a moment about what kind of crimes. But typically a psychological motive that is maybe not familiar with this detective. He might not have seen this kind of crime scene before. And we're trying to analyze that and get more out of that crime scene to tell us about the individual, which obviously is aimed at helping us catch this person faster. So that's one way you can say what is a profile. But if you look at what a profiler does, a profiler does far more than that. And I always like to say that my time in SAPS, I probably did very few of the traditional reports that I've just mentioned now, the profile report about the unknown suspect. Uh, and I probably spent more of my time just helping the detective solve the case, doing other things that weren't per se ending up in a little report that has a word profile stamped on the front. So a profiler does things like, of course, compiling these profile reports. We also do what we call linkage analysis. So we look, for example, you know, if you have a bunch of cases you think might be the work of one individual, what's the avenues that you have to confirm that? So, of course, you can go for um, DNA which is great. So if you find DNA here on this crime scene, the same DNA on another crime scene, you know, that same suspect was involved in these two cases or fingerprints or ballistic evidence can link different crime scenes together. But what about when you don't have those for various reasons? You don't have, you know, serial murderers strangled or stabbed or, or you know, use blunt force. So you don't have a gun. Uh, you don't even have a knife that you can necessarily pick up on. Um, you know, you might not have DNA because maybe the guy used the condom or maybe the bodies have been out and decomposing for the past, you know, three weeks and your DNA is degraded. So, so what we would then look at is what, what do we see left over at the crime scene? The, 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 you know, the, in other words, what was done to the body that we can still see? You know, obviously, forensic pathologists will tell us about cause of death, etc. And uh, forensic anthropologists will look at the damage to the bones, etc. And, and tell us information about that. And victimology, etc. And where the crimes are, the geographic location. And based on that, we would say, 
Is there enough similarity amongst these crime scenes to say that we as profilers think that this is the work of the same individual? And that's important during the investigation to know what other cases to look out for and, of course, what cases to include in your investigation, even if in the absence of forensic evidence. It also became a tool we would use in court to get people convicted. And, and, and as we said in the Quarry Serial Killer case, that's exactly what we did where we didn't have the physical evidence. So linkage analysis is another thing that we often spend our time doing. Um, equivocal death analysis. So let's say you come onto a crime scene and you're not sure if it's, is this a murder, a suicide or an accidental death. Mm. It's not that clear. And then we would have a look at it, look into the background of the victim, the potential suspect that they might have, uh, the circumstances, etc., and give an opinion to say, actually, this might be an accidental death as opposed to a strange murder uh, and vice versa. So that's equivocal death analysis. Um, in general, a crime scene assessment. So where a profile looks at the background of the individual, who is this person behind the crime? A crime scene analysis you can almost say it's the first stage of a profile. We would want to look at why do we think certain things happened or played out at the scene? In, in what order, firstly, and why? Mm. And that's often the springboard for the next question, which is who? So that could be a crime scene analysis. Often we spend a lot of time either developing an interview strategy for a detective or even doing the interview once they pick up a suspect. Again, looking at the crime scene, telling us information about what do we think this guy was doing at the scene. Well, then when we interview a potential suspect, we would want to filter those things, those elements into our interview with the suspect. So a lot of our time was spent helping interview suspects. Um, and also looking at geographic profile. You know, where were these crime scenes and what does that tell us about where the suspect might live or, or work? So the psychological profile is just one component of it. And, it, and that really helps if you have a lack of other evidence, more concrete, yeah. you know, more, more tangible evidence. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of information. Mm. Maybe we should go back and start the, the history of profiling. Yeah. So, because we're going to deep dive into a, into a case study. I think we'll understand how, how all of these things are applied in a practical sense. Mm. The start of, of profiling, where did this begin? Yeah. You know, I always like to say that we all profile to some degree. It's it's probably yes. a human survival mechanism. You go out on a date for the first time. You're looking at how this person behaves. Do they, are they rude to the waitress? Um, are they, you know, cheeky? Are they this? Are they arrogant? Are they boastful? And so we profile on a daily basis, probably historically when we were in caveman times to survive. Now we do it to try and find the, the best mate. Or if you interview someone for a business deal, you, you're always kind of trying to figure out about this person and whether this is a, a reliable person or not in, or whatever it is that you need to. On, just as an aside on that point, in our interactions, when we've I've introduced you to to, to some of my colleagues, etc., a couple of, it's come up a couple of times this idea that is Gerard potentially profiling us as we're just you know is it something that you are just uh, tuned in to do mm. and do you do you find yourself doing it like okay wait this guy could be a bunny boiler. <laughs> I don't think so, but okay. maybe it, it is second nature. Like I said, we all do it. Again, you know, the way we did it in the police, which we'll get into a moment, is obviously with a bit more intention and forethought. But uh, I think, like I said, we all do it to some degree. Whether I do it more than others, even in social interactions, I hope not, because that would be horrible. <laughs> you know, you, you just want to be a person sometimes and, yeah, good to know. you know, interact normally <laughs> with people as opposed to trying to – and that's I get that a lot because I'm a psychologist. Oh, are you analyzing me? For sure, yeah. I was like, oh, that would be so tiring, and I wouldn't get paid for it. So, no, no, I'm not okay, uh, I'm not probably doing it to <laughs> okay. that level. So no. there you go, everybody. When you meet Gerard, don't worry. Relax, okay? <laughs> so, so I think people profile 
profile naturally. Yeah. Uh, who first started to do it in in from a criminal investigation point of view? Again, you know, lots of people have the claim. I, I was a profiler. I coined the term serial murder. I'm a. I was a first profile. Well, the first profile was written about Hitler back in what you know in the forties or thirties. Uh, but if you read you know Sherlock Holmes's books, he profiles. So where you know I think it's a pointless thing to try and figure out who was the first because that's it was very arrogant. Mm. Um, so I think it's been applied criminally. I think it became more scientific when we started to look in about the 70s. And I do think we have to give the FBI a lot of credit. You know, they get a lot of bashing at times, um, but they really were the first people to say, look, as an organization, we think this is an investigative tool. We want to start looking into it from a research point of view, et cetera, et cetera, and start to formalize how we look at things. That it's not, oh, you think this and I'm going to think something different. Let's see who's right. You know, that's not really helpful for when you're dealing with criminal behavior. Yeah. It's okay when you're talking about your buddies and friends and, you know, because the risks are not great. Yeah. If you, you know, make me to make friends with someone who turns out to be not that a great friend, you know, you can just, you know, move on. But in the criminal world, the investigative world and legal world, the, the, the consequences are quite dire if you get it wrong. So they really, you know, probably back in about the late 70s, um, started to first formalize this as an investigative tool. And I think the show, the show Mindhunter that's on, on now on TV, on Netflix, or wherever it is, yeah, is, is really about those early phases and is based on those early developments and the struggles and frustrations that, that they were experiencing as they tried to formalize this. Mm-hmm. But then by 1993, they, they specifically appointed people in the FBI whose job it was to advise outside law enforcement agencies with really complex and unusual cases. So by 94, what they'd done is formalize it even more and they'd formalized what they called the special fellowship program where they said, right, we're never gonna be able to reach everybody who needs our help. So let's start to give training to local uh, and and state law enforcement agencies. Because like we said before, there's 17,000 different law enforcement agencies in the US and they're all independent. So let's start giving training to, you know, state and local law enforcement that they have the capabilities in-house and maybe they can help other people in their region or state. So by 1984, they had done that and they called it the Special Fellowship Program. And that was a one-year course, obviously lots of funding back in those days compared to now, where people would send their people to the FBI for a year and literally go through the training, understudy, work on cases. And it was obviously a great opportunity. Um, and those people who went through that established what they call the police fellowship. Well, I suppose you can say like an alumni of people who've been to that program by 1989, was sort of up and running. And then they eventually, what that became what they called the International Criminal Investigative Analysis Fellowship, the short ICIAF, which okay. is still in existence today. Okay. Then they thought, obviously now internationally, what about we're getting requests from people overseas? So by 1989, they'd actually started to have overseas profilers who again would come and spend a year at the FBI. I mean, again, what a fantastic opportunity. And, you know, for example, the Dutch sent someone, they've only ever sent one individual, Carlos Skippers, who was one of the original guys and who's just, uh, I think, about to retire from the Dutch police. And it was mainly, I think, Canada and the Dutch that actually sent anyone. Where are we at this stage as far as our capability at SAPS yeah. in the late 80s, early 90s? It doesn't exist yet. It doesn't so exist. SAPS really only started to formalize this round about 1994 with okay. uh, the Moses and Station Strangler investigation. Okay. So Mickey Pistorius and her research and what have you really was the kind of first in- introduction to it in the kind of academic in space South Africa, in South Africa. With, without a doubt. And if you look at it, if the FBI are only really formalizing this round about 89, by 94, we had it. We sure. actually were pretty much not far behind them. Yeah, we were. Uh, the, and of course, we're gonna, we can elaborate on that whole thing there. So 89, international police started to um, come for training, and that only really lasted for about two years. Okay. By 1991, they stopped training non-FBI people. Okay. Um, I think if you look at 1992, 
Um, obviously, all these other law enforcement agencies were saying, but hang on a minute, we, we wanted to continue training people. And overseas people were saying, but we, we also wanted to, what are we going to do? And that's when this fellowship I mentioned a moment ago by the ex-alumni uh, became morphed into the ICIF, who said, listen, FBI, we want your permission to run this curriculum. Okay. This is the set courses, which we'll discuss in a moment. Okay. And if people do these trainings through accredited people and they have a mentor who is a accredited profiler, to use that word, can we sort of continue to generate and train profilers? And that kind of is what is continuing up until today. So if anybody says to you, I was trained as a profiler by the FBI, and this was after 1991, Okay. They're probably lying because okay, they fine. didn't allow people. So even me, I spent time at the FBI attending training, giving training, but I can't call myself an FBI trained profiler. In the second part of the show, we'll discuss how do we create a profile. You can tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search Profiler Africa on YouTube and please subscribe to our page. We are also available on iTunes and you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. Simply search for Profiler Africa. In South Africa, 57 people are murdered every day. On Profiler, we bring you the stories of the serial criminals and the people who hunt them. I am Paul Llewellyn. I am a journalist with a fascination for serial crime. My partner in crime is Jared Labuskakni, former head of SAP's investigative psychology section and the man responsible for catching some of SA's most prolific killers. In segment one, we looked at the background, the history of profiling, the curriculum for profiler training. Mm -hmm. What are the different areas that are covered? So so what we kind of did here at SAPS, which mirrors very much the ICIAF curriculum, um, is you'd expect a person, if they didn't already have it in terms of their background, to get training in homicide investigation. So I was very fortunate and I went to the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and attended their um, their homicide school, which was a fantastic opportunity when SAPS sent Give us there. a sense of that. What, what um, What's your experience? Well, firstly, American cops are very interesting. Uh, in a way, there's a lot of what you see on TV is kind of the it's, it's the don't mess with Texas <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> but um, but very knowledgeable, very dedicated. I mean, it's just amazing to see the cops overseas. The ones I came across in the states, are, are, it's they're really they're, their heart is being a cop. You know, that's what they wanted to be their whole lives, and they're incredibly dedicated. Um, so that would be, I think, it was a two or three course. You've got practical crime scenes. They have, you know, obviously discussing a lot of case studies because that's really where you learn is is through case studies. You know, looking at typologies of offenders motives for murder um you know you know the equivocal deaths that i mentioned earlier you know to make sure are you dealing with the murder in the first place uh we even did things where they would they with their crime scene uh people where they would bury a a, a deceased pig uh, a couple of days before and you'd actually go and do one day the whole how an excavation of a body would work you know we would go to the mortuary so you know get insight on how the pathologists work you'd have lecture from different different people who play different roles in the whole criminal justice system from the lawyers to as i said the forensic experts crime scene experts so that was a really amazing opportunity to go and mm. and spend that time seeing how how they do things etc so homicide investigation obviously central because many of the cases you're going to work on are, are, are death related mm. you know obviously sexual offenses investigation so if you haven't had that training 
you would want then you know to understand from pedophiles to serial rapists to straightforward rapists and other types of sexual offenders from child pornographers and people who have those weird sexual interests that sometimes sometimes can cause them to commit criminal acts mm-hmm. um, offender typologies you know what are the different types of serial rapists because people might think that serial rape is one concept no you get different serial rapists who rape for different reasons you get the sadistic type you get the one who's this they call the gentleman rapist who in his mind he maybe doesn't think he's raping um, and his rapes tend to be very different in how he does them versus the sadistic rapist so offender typologies for murderers rapists uh, etc um, statement analysis so if you get a, 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 a witness who's written a statement how can you analyze that statement to actually pick up where the person's hiding something okay. or maybe possibly lying and those of course will be points that you would then go and investigate further through your through your investigations mm-hmm. um, obviously interviewing techniques yeah. you know that's key to most investigations whether it's a fraudster a hijacker a serial murderer interviewing not just interviewing the suspect but also interviewing people to get the maximum and accurate information out of them mm-hmm. is essential but of course when you're dealing with the types of crimes that we would be profiling you know your, your unusual crimes you interview that person very differently to how you interview a housebreaker mm-hmm. Because their motives are different. Can you do you have a perspective on your capabilities prior to this training and post? If you're in an interview situation, can you really see this guy is is pulling a fast one here, or he's trying to pull the wall over my eyes? Here? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the training definitely helps, and I would say that if, you know, we often say to investigators for big companies that we give training to, you know, it's if you aren't properly trained in investigation, you just will miss so much. Mm. And often people think, but an interview with the possible suspect, the aim is to get a conv- is to get a confession. And no, it's not. That's, you can't measure yourself as it was a failure of an interview because I didn't get a confession. It's a very simplistic way of looking at it. It's a success as long as you get information out of this person. Okay. So, yeah. So, I think just to quickly, a bloodstain pattern analysis. When you get to a crime scene, you see blood splattered. What does that tell you about how a crime occurred? The equivocal death analysis I mentioned mm-hmm. a moment ago, um, threat assessment, obviously, which is my, my main role nowadays, understanding arson and bombing and forensic pathology. So, those are the kind of key subjects that you'd want to deal with in developing a person as a profiler. What crimes can we profile? So, yeah. So, I mean, the type of profiling we're talking about is going to be more suited towards what we call your psychologically motivated crime. So, yes, you can argue on one level that psychology is involved in everything we do, you know, whether you like chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream or who you date, etc. Yes. But if you're going to reduce everything to that level, that's not particularly helpful. So, we normally say that crimes can pretty much be divided up into two main categories. Some that have a financial motive, whether that motive being I want this laptop because I want to use it or I want the laptop because I'm going to sell it or I have an order for a laptop like this and therefore I'm going to pass it on to someone else and I'm going to get a cut. So most crimes that police deal with have that financial element at some chain in the process. The person's not committing the laptop theft because they necessarily are motivated by the excitement. That might be an element, but the main motive is the financial benefit. Then you get those other crimes where the crime itself is the reward. And that literally spans from domestic violence. You know, that guy has beaten his wife, gets some, I don't know, satisfaction, pleasure, whatever, out of doing it, that immediate reward. Same thing with your sex crimes. You know, a person who goes out and rapes is getting some, on some level, a satisfaction by committing that crime. Um, and the same goes for your serial murderers who get some satisfaction. Those are then we start to talk about psychologically motivated crimes. And it's crimes where you really need to try and understand deeper what's motivating this particular guy. So you might have 10 serial rapists, but they're all a little bit different and a little bit differently motivated. And that's where your analysis of the crime scene of or how the crime was committed, the modus operandi, etc., starts to give us insights as to who we're looking for. Mm. You know, you pretty much know a hijacker, you're looking for a hijacker, and he's going to yeah. sell that car. You kind of know, you know, what's going to be happening in that process. Mm. But with these, you really want to get a deeper understanding as to why, you, why your person is doing it, and how can we use that to catch him? 
Yeah. You know, what do we see in a typical serial murderer, serial rapist, pedophile that they do that we can use to our investigative advantage? And that's what the profiling is. It's about understanding that psychological motive, which is probably going to be mainly present in your psychologically motivated crimes. Mm. Let's unpack in more detail. Modus operandi, fantasy, and signature. Yeah. Three separate but very relevant concepts, specifically when we deal with psychologically motivated crimes. So every crime, whether it's a house bank robber, a bank robber, hijacker, serial murder, has a modus operandi. Hmm. The way that they have found is going to be the best way to successfully commit their crime and get away with it. So if I had to say to you, Paul, go and plan a bank robber, you'd sit there and you go, I'm going to need, I'm going to need five guys. I'm going to need three guns. I'm going to need a lookout person outside and balaclavas. And it's, that's all modus operandi stuff. We're going to do it at this time of the day because that's when the most money is. Modus operandi aimed at successful completion of crime and getting away with it. Um, but then when we talk about psychological motive, we're talking about that underlying fantasy that's motivating this person to commit the crime. So the other guys is going to be that financial benefit. But our people that were profiled have that inner psychological drive, urge, motive, often and it comes out in a fantasy of what they would like to do to a person one day whenever they get the opportunity. And that underlying fantasy might be very well understood by the suspect, like your sadists mm -hmm. often can tell you exactly in minute detail what they're going to do one day when they finally get their victim. Some of them write about it, which is great for us from an investigative point afterwards. Some of them record what they do to their victims, which again is, is great for us from an investigative point of view. And there's a very interesting interview, I think it's by Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, NG, oh, yes. in California, who, yes. who had built this whole bunker where they mm. would kidnap people and torture them over a period of time. Mm. And before Lake started, and you could probably find it on the internet he actually did a video interview of himself um about what he wants to do to someone so that's a level where your fantasies are very well described then you get people probably who have never really spent a lot of time thinking about their fantasies but it's there underlying maybe a bit more covert or unconscious even to themselves but it's there and we see that because what they do to their victims is the same thing every single time mm. so that's the fantasy that kind of is driving the person compared to other types of criminals and that fantasy can evolve over oh, time yeah, and the yeah. modus operandi evolves over time and so because yeah. there is an element fairly often of kind of dipping your toe in the water and then yeah. the whole leg and then then jumping in the deep end. So, so what we also say is that they probably, to some degree, I know what their ideal is that they would like to do. Yes. But now they, they try it out for the first time and they're nervous. They've never done it before. So they might only try out 5% of that yeah. fantasy. And then they get more comfortable or things go better. They realize, wow, little victims fight back. I better get something to restrain them. So they, there might be a little bit of changes. Mm. We're not saying that the fantasy really has changed, but what we're seeing being expressed on the crime scenes is becoming more and more of that fantasy. Yeah. That's not to say there can't be tweaks and twists as things go on, but yeah. they probably have a very rough, good idea of what they want to do. How much they get to act out at each scene is different. You also might find a victim fights back a lot and they don't get to act out everything. And this is where the profile becomes important to keep track of yeah. the, potentially that evolution so these are the commonalities that we're mm. seeing and yes they move they're, they're taking strides forward in certain ways but at the core they're fulfilling a particular version of a fantasy and mm. that typically stays pretty consistent mm -hmm. so we've had for example suspects who said who all their victims might have been raped left for naked killed in a particular way and then we get one that wasn't Mm. But he either confesses to it later or it's in the same geographical region um, or there's something that links he maybe he's found with that victim self. And they'll often say, I was trying to, but she fought back. And then I saw there were people walking through the felt towards me and I, and I, I just thought, let me just kill her. So circumstances impact what's going to be acted out on that particular crime scene. So you also have to have an understanding that 
things don't always work out the way the suspect wants them to. So when you are doing that case linkage that I spoke of earlier, to know that you can get quite significant variations, but what still are the consistent themes that are still there? And you don't have to have every single one of them, but if you've got two or three and there's strong enough linkage factors that you still might say this case is the same, although you didn't see everything that you saw on case number one, two, and three, and you're now looking at case number four. Give us an example of a, of of this kind of a fantasy that you that that has been explained to you by a killer. Mm-hmm. So I think Satola is quite a nice one in that sense that he would he liked that sense of power and control. He was probably one of the a very classic example of a power and control type of serial serial murderer, where you know initially it started off he's just going to strangle them. And then he would use a ligature like a rope or a piece of underwear or, or, or the, the belt of the victim. And then it got more sophisticated mm. where he would, for example, use a ligature around the neck, like let's say a piece of clothing, but he would put a stick underneath it and then twist it. So he could maximize, or either he became lazy uh, or two, but then he would like, as the victim passed out, he would undo it and the victim would revive. So he can extend that that ultimate control of a person's life. And then he got a bit more fancy where the victim would be lying down on their stomach and he would have a rope around their neck and and the the rope going down their back and tied to their ankle, which was bent backwards. So all he would have to do was literally pull on that ankle. Sure to increase the tension around the neck. So he's a bit of leverage. And then, for example, one victim, he tied their hands behind their back and he tied a thing around their neck. I think it was a handbag strap and he tied that to a low branch. And he sat there and he waited for hours until this victim's legs couldn't keep them up. And they actually just, he sat and watched while their legs gave in. And that, of course, increased the tension wow. around the neutral neck. So that's an example of how it can, how he always had that fantasy of being in power and control but he perhaps has got better ways of, of acting it out and expressing it on the crime scene. People don't, un- people don't, I think, understand necessarily understand how difficult it is to strangle someone. Yeah, and it's an extremely intimate way to kill Very somebody so, as well. Yeah. And that's why some choose it because they like that ha- literally hands-on yeah. process of strangling someone. But of course, you know, most people fight back. You know, most of our serial murders haven't first necessarily tied up their victims' hands and then strangled them. So again, those are the types of things we'd be looking for and uh, and trying to understand. So, that, so that's part of the fantasy. What we see left behind on the crime scene of that fantasy is what we call the signature. So signature is really what we see left behind. If it's a murder scene, of course, what they did to the body, the location of the body, etc., tell us about the signature. If it's a rape victim, of course, we would get that information from the uh, the victim's statement or an interview with the victim. So but if we stick with murder, it'll be something something unique that says to us, this is probably the work of the same individual. It doesn't have to be something weird and bizarre. It doesn't mean that they've necessarily carved their, something on the forehead of the victim with a knife type of weird. Of course, yes, that's a very obvious signature. But it can even be a unique combination, you know, tying the victim's hands in a certain way, um, leaving the victim face down uh, in this position, which aren't on them on, in themselves very weird, but it's similar across these various cases. In the third segment, we want to talk about a, a, a case study, and we'll discuss the mind dump uh, serial murderer uh, Sipo Dube. Mm. Before that, let's talk about the crime scene briefly. The crime scene is the starting point, mm. geography of the crime scenes, and what the final product is that we. As far as the profile is concerned, what does that look like? So, look, we don't always have the luxury of being able to go out to the crime scene because obviously, for example, in South Africa, we were based in Pretoria. Um, So typically, if we can go to the crime scene, it's great. We will. And if we can go to the autopsy before it's done, we will we will try and be present. But often we're working from the the case docket. So even then, the crime scene still is our most important thing. So we'll have to maybe work from crime scene photographs, crime scene videos, and even going back to the crime scene afterwards to get an understanding of the, the environment in which the crime took place. Is it a difficult to get to place? 
is it something that probably only someone who lives here would know about this area? Mm. Uh, what does that give us more information about? So that looking at what was done to the body um, is, is going to be very essential to us in understanding. And we're often looking at things that are different to what the detective is looking at and interpreting them differently in terms of what those meanings are. The geography, how, how important a factor is that when it comes to yeah. evaluating a crime scene? So over the years, we picked it up and internationally people have started to document how important crime scene geography is in serial crimes. So where is this person committing their crime? So we started to GPS all of our crime scenes and we started to see that there's, there's very often clear patterns. You might get like a donut shape where you've got this ring of crime scenes. You might get a different type of shape. Um, you might, and, and what does that tell us about the suspect? And very often what we would find is that the suspect lives or works in and amongst those crime scenes or has a history of living or working in and amongst those crime scenes. So we would even use that from an investigative strategy to figure out where we should start looking for our suspect. Yeah. When you put all this information together, what do you have and how, you know, how, how is it, how, how useful is it to the yeah. investigator? Yeah, so we'd obviously touch on things like who, who is this person we think we're looking for. That's the, the pure profile. Um, but then also, of course, investigative suggestions from our experience is what we would include in our profile in South Africa, which you might find maybe in the UK. They don't give investigative suggestions because yeah. they're not allowed to, for example. Um, so our benefits of being investigators, also policemen, allows us to perhaps give much more broader feedback than my colleagues and my colleagues in the UK are really restricted into what they can comment on. Mm. And if there's not massive amounts of research proving what they've just said, they can't even comment on it. Okay. So that's why when I speak to people overseas who say, well, they don't believe in profiling until it reaches the standards of evidence, of DNA evidence, they don't think we should be doing it. But it's not intended as a courtroom evidence. It's intended to help guide investigators in some direction. Otherwise, you're going to say, well, sorry, you're on your own and take whatever turned on whatever avenue and good luck if it's the wrong one, uh, as opposed to saying, well, there's people who've dealt with these issues before. Let's at least speak to them and see what they have to say, which might be useful. Well, in segment three, we're going to discover how useful a profile really is as we look at the Johannesburg mind dump serial murderer, Sipo Dube, and the profile that Gerard created for him. Don't forget that you can tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search Profiler Africa on YouTube and please subscribe to our page. We are also available on iTunes and you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. Simply search for Profiler Africa. Africa. Today we are talking the profile. What is it? How is it created? How is it applied? Now let's look at a practical case study. The Johannesburg mind dump serial murderer Sipo Dube. Tell us, how did you get involved in this case, Gerard, to start with? Actually, this was quite interesting. Uh, at the time, my boss was uh, General Sharon Skitter in the police, and she'd be listen listening to the radio and heard that um, the Johannesburg Sexual Offences Unit, or the FCS unit, was investigating a possible serial rapist and a profile had been compiled. So she asked us, was that us that had compiled the profile? And I said, well, no, it wasn't. And of course, in SAPS, the only people who have a mandate to do profiling was my unit. So 
you know, if, if someone else was doing it, we'd be a bit concerned as to obviously the level of training and experience when, and we have the unit in the police. So I went and met with the um, head of the unit at the time. And um, they said, yes, there's a criminologist who provides them other kind other services, which she was totally qualified to provide. Uh, and they asked her to do a profile. And I kind of said, well, you know, it's, you are actually supposed to use us. We've kind of only ones we can at least vouch for our own quality of experience and training. Um, but long, long story short, he, he let me then, he gave me the same four cases at the time that they had. And I said, look, let me do a profile on those same four cases and you can compare anyway. But, you know, I, you know, we are kind of the people you're supposed to be using. And that's how it came about. And that was about, sure, February 2003. And at that point, it was four rapes of children who weren't murdered. Um, and these rapes had occurred between September and October of 2002. And what happened in each of these cases, yeah. or what was the common thread? Yeah, so basically, um, the first one was a, a young nine-year-old little girl, and the suspect approached four kids who were out playing outside, and this is very common with our serial rapists. They might approach n- numerous kids at the same time, and then offered him their money if they would help him carry some boxes. And again, this is a time and time again modus operandi we see with serials targeting children. Uh, two of the girls went with him, and at, they got to a point at the, at the edge of a large field, and one was um, instructed to wait. Well, this guy went with the other little girl. So that first girl basically got to the felt, told her to lie down, raped her, and then vaginally and anally, and then told her to go fetch her friend. And of course, she got her friend and they ran off. So the issue there for me was the con story that we was using, the threats of violence, but no actual violence at that point. And we had a vaginal anal rape. And about an hour long, this whole process took place from start to finish. And he took, uh, I think, a tracksuit pants and, and eight rand that she had with her. Okay. Then October the next one. He's a trophy. I mean, the pants would be a, yeah. tro- a trophy. They would never fit him. Yeah. yeah. So then 5th of October 2002, he approaches a little boy. So now we've gone from two, two girls to a boy and also approached two kids who were at the shop, asked them, to, you know, help me carry something and I'll give you money. And both went with him. I suppose they felt if it's two of us, it's safer. You know, a guy would have nefarious intentions, you know, wouldn't want both of us to go with. So mm-hmm. maybe that helped for them. Yeah. Um, and then while they were walking, one of the boys obviously thought, I don't like this and ran off. And then he took hold physically of the other one and basically took him into a bush area and said, you've got three three options. I'm going to shoot you, stab you, or pardon you. So, of course, being a smart kid, he said, well, I choose the third option. But unfortunately, that came with him having to be engaged in sexual activity, obviously against his will with this guy. Mm. And that took uh, a little while. And afterwards, once he'd finished, he said to the boy, come with me. I'm going to go buy some cigarettes. And as the kid saw a security guard, he ran up to the security guard and the suspect fled. So, again, we have a con story of carrying bags. We have threats of violence, but no physical physical violence yet, one anal rape, but now we have a two-hour crime as opposed to one hour mm. in the first known incident. But he didn't take anything from this little boy. Then we have the third one, uh, the third incident, which took place also in October, about 10 days later, 2002, a little girl. And she says he approached her in what she described as a policeman's uniform, mm. which could obviously be a security guard uniform. You know, kids don't necessarily know what a police proper police uniform mm. is like. And this was outside of a school, high-risk uh, scenario, and um, said she must come with him. Uh, took her by the arm and then basically led her off into the bushes and said that um, uh, you, I can't let you go because I'm, I'm going to kill you tonight. Unfortunately, he ultimately didn't and took her up a mind dump and told her to undress and uh, and then raped her. Just as an aside, what we're going to do is um, if you go to our social media pages, we will post some images of the killer himself, um, of, of the geography of the crime scene. So if you want to take a look at that just to uh, – 
enhance your understanding of what we're talking about as we kind of yep. continue through the case study, please go online yep. to our social media pages and take a look there. He then raped her a second time, and then they walked towards a petrol station, and again, basically, she then kind of ran off. Um, so again, we've got a con story. It's a bit different now. A policeman, it's outside of the front of a school at the end of a school day, very risky. Threats of violence, and he did hit her once when she didn't comply to get undressed. Uh he two two times rape and six and a half hours now that he's with this young lady. Wow. So we've gone from one hour, two hours, six and a half hours. Then at the end of October that same that same month, he approaches a thirteen year old girl. She was at home alone, and he knocked on the door and said he's here to fix the, the lights. Um, and there had been power problems in the area, and then said to her, "But you need to come with me to go that I can go buy an electricity card at the shop." Now again, adults would go, "This is just totally wrong." But this little girl, thirteen year old. You know, and she believed this guy and then walked up a mountain, which turned out to be a mine dump. Um, and suddenly, without provocation, hits her in the face, tells her to undress, threatens to 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 kill her when she starts to cry and kept her under a bridge. And this actually turns out where we lived a little sort of almost like a service space under the bridge, kept okay. her there overnight uh, where he raped her. So again, we've got a con story, but now again, you've gone from approaching kids out in the street, which is low risk, yeah. outside of a school in apparently a police uniform or similar high risk, because parents might say, but who are you? You're not a policeman. Mm. And now to going into side, inside someone's house. So the other versions would have worked quite well. You mm. could have continued to approach kids randomly on the street corners and said, I've got 10 rand for you, help me do something. Why are you not thinking these are different different criminals um the victor the general area was was a relatively close geographical area where they were all you know most of them being taken to a mine dump or near a mine dump um still a con story um so that's that's also concerning um and so I guess again, the majority of rape cases that are reported are well, they're not. They're, it's not going to be stranger rape cases, like or not strange. Okay, yeah, fine, yeah. So it'd be a, a boyfriend girlfriend scenario, or yeah, and you know, people know crimes of passion in the moment, yeah. those kinds of things. Okay, so. Now we have unprovoked violence because this little girl didn't argue with him, didn't fight with him, and he spontaneously hits her. And he kept her for 18 hours. So that was the four cases we had at that particular point. So you've looked at these four cases. Yeah. What do you conclude now right. out of these four cases? So from the environment, the scenes were all close together. So again, does that tell us that he has a familiarity with this particular area, which did turn out to be correct? Um, did he live okay. or work or have some association? Um, the con stories is common. Uh, but he was okay. becoming more risky unnecessarily. So is that part of his psychological need for that sort of tension and anxiety about, I'm going to do it in a more risky way than yeah, before? he wants the thrill. The oh, thrill yes. of it, absolutely. Okay. The violence went from none, the threats to functional, you know, getting control to un unnecessary uh, in terms of the case. Um, not taking steps to avoid his identity. He wasn't wearing a balaclava. He didn't try and cover up DNA. He wasn't wearing a condom. So again, a lack of sophistication on behalf of the offender. Um, obviously, he's targeting children. So do we have pedoph pedophilia as an issue, partly motivating the crime? So the clothing was souvenir orientated because obviously he couldn't wear the clothing. Um, Optobie's victimology was little, little children across the racial spectrum. Um, it escalated from you know approaching four kids, then two kids, and then eventually approaching one kid mm -hmm. does he know where he's moving towards and he wants less potential witnesses the longer time with the victims speaking about killing them which in the second third and fourth case he used the word how should i kill you am i going to kill you maybe i'll kill you and all of those said "Ooh, 
this kid, this guy's moving towards killing people, which unfortunately is ultimately what happened. Mm-hmm. We kind of said in terms of him, he's probably between 20 to 27. He turned out to be 23, that he'd be single, that he lives in an informal accommodation in the area, that to turn out to be right, that he'd be unemployed. That was correct also, um, that he would have little formal education. And that he would be on foot, he wouldn't have a vehicle. And if he had a criminal record or criminal experience, it would be for rape and burglary. And then these things all, all did turn out to be correct. And then he would come from a rural area, which he, t- he did come from a, a rural part of KZN. From the investigation point of view, we obviously said follow up the DNA. Um, that conduct inquiries in the places he used to live, because he, he probably, who's to say this is where he started his criminal career. And that did turn out that he had committed crimes, rapes and murders in Vienna, in, the K- in KZN. And often that the suspect's name would appear earlier on in the case, and that actually happened in this instance. They'd actually gone back to the, the last victim's area, because she obviously pointed out where the rape occurred, where he kept her overnight under the bridge. And they found a guy there, which turned out to be our guy. And this is where pe- policemen not following proper procedure is, is, is a bit of a disaster. Okay. So instead of doing what you should do, which is a proper formal identity parade, which is done in a particular way to, to minimize the anxiety of the victim, etc., etc., they took the guy to the little girl and said, is this the guy? And she said, no. Okay. Now, is it no because she's absolutely fearful of this guy who had control over her life? Maybe it was dark, so she wasn't sure, etc., etc., etc. That she said okay. no, and it turned out to actually be him. Okay. So that was a bit of a, again, we have procedures in place for reasons. Let's stick to those reasons. So yes. they said, so then when we got there, we said, well, did you at least get a picture of him? Did you at least take his DNA? Well, we couldn't because she said it wasn't him. I think thereafter, if I recall correctly, they just try to find him and they, then they could. Okay. Okay. So you released the profile. We give the profile to the detective. Yes. Because we don't want this profile lost yes, all yes. over so the media. Yes, hand it over yeah. to, the, to the investigator. And of course, hopefully, yes. we would like to think that they're going to use it. Now, remember, this is on the back of they had a previous person who did a profile. We saw that. And what I was saying and what they were saying was two very, very, very different outcomes. And I think yeah. that's, again, you, for something like this, because you can misdirect an investigation, you really do need to be properly trained. Yes. Because a lot of the points we picked up here that we've discussed weren't even identified by this other individual it's very telling how all of the information that we've spoken about over the course of the episode when combined i mean your profile does turn out to be a very accurate Mm. overview of what this guy is all about what is Mm. what his life is like what his what his habits are etc okay so how is that applied then the murders murders start happening yeah so basically we gave that report to them and um we don't really hear anything until April 2003, about a month, yeah, a month and a half after the profile uh, was completed, a little boy went missing in the same area. And we get a phone call one night from the detective saying, do you think this could be our suspect? I said, well, yeah, you seriously have to. I mean, my report said he's going to move in towards murdering. Hmm. Now, this is also, again, why the report, I think the most important aspect of the report was sexual offenses detectives do not investigate murders. So if a child had been found murdered, they wouldn't be called to the scene. It would go to the general investigators. So by w- at least warning the detectives, listen, you need to start telling your buddies in the, in the general detectives that if they get a kid who's been murdered, they need to contact you because it could be our suspect. And I think that was probably, the in the end, the biggest advantage of the profile in this particular case because they did get called out now when they had a child murder, which under normal circumstances, sexual offenses detectives wouldn't be responding to that. And a little boy went missing in the same area um, and the father actually received two phone calls from the suspect. The father of the little missing boy saying, your child is dead and I'm at the place where the police are with the body. And that was actually the suspect. 
So we had the meeting. And do you believe he was at the crime scene while yeah. he, while while your yeah. team was there? Yeah. Wow. So we weren't at that particular scene, but this is now the phone call I'm getting from. It's the, incredible how brazen he's become. Yeah. Considering he's also been ide- he doesn't know if there's going to be some some of the cops that were there from when he was when he was seen under the bridge, for yeah. example. Yeah. So wow. So essentially, basically, that that then now officially kicked it off as. We need to have ramp this up. Yes. And Pete Bellefeld, who recently passed away, a very well-known policeman, was put in charge of the task team to take it further because obviously he, he was very experienced with serial murder cases. Um, then we started to have a few more murders, and basically the suspect continued murdering from that point onwards. So it's not uncommon for us to see rapes that escalate into then subsequent rape and murders. As what the kind guy. of frequency are we talking about? Um, August of that year, we had then another one. Um, September of that year, we had another one, 18th of September, um, 24th of September, we had two murders. And the final girl, which was quite high profile in the media, was Tina Bernardis, who was murdered, an 11-year-old girl. She'd been last seen in the presence in the same area, uh, was approached to, I think she was with her mother, selling items on the side of the road. And the suspect, I think, had a cell phone he wanted to buy or sell. And she went with him to go, I think, get the cell phone. And, of course, that's when he then he, then he took her. And how did we get to catching him? Well, so the day that uh, Tina went missing, uh, her body's found the next day. Someone said that they recognized the guy that she was seen walking with. And they were able to locate the suspect. So in the end, your actual solvent of the case came from a member of the public who recognized, I, I, re- I see this guy in the area because obviously he's operating in an area that he's mo- oper- he moves around in. Mm. And they were able to ID him. So after all of our fancy stuff, it was a member of the community that essentially was the key to helping us mm. identify the suspect. Mm. So again, that's why I say in this case, did the profile help? Well, it perhaps helped in warning people what's to come, that we have a serial, that we need to pay more attention to this. But did it ultimately... You know, knowing that all those features about him help us catch him sooner, no. Mm. And that's why, again, it's, it's not always going to be the helpful tool sure. we expect, even if you're 100% right. So he, he gets arrested. He then does confessions and uh, points out the various scenes to an independent uh, policeman. We search that place. We go back and research that place, and we find clothes and items, and bloodstained children's clothes, etc., um, the police obviously collect those exhibits. Um, we can even put a picture of what it looked like inside that little place where the guy was staying. Um, Great. It's that quite, would, okay. uh, quite miserable and, and unpleasant for okay, that. Okay, so go on to our Instagram and check that out. Who kind of had to stay there in those conditions overnight and must have been terrified. But then we start to make inquiries about where he used to stay. And as I said, it turns out he's from rural KZN. And they go down to Viennan, which is in KwaZulu-Natal. And they find out that he had... Uh, abducted and anally raped a young child in 1999. Okay. Um, Drove with him on a bicycle 40 kilometers and then raped a little boy. We also found that in 2001, so in other words, this is is the sort of a year or two Mm. before the the Joburg cases, that at the, in Ladysmith, there's a monument and an Indian lady had been found murdered there. And she'd actually gone to meet her boyfriend and was encountered by the suspect who then killed her. And also, placed a rock on top of her, but not in a way to hide her because mm. she's lying in the middle of a national mon- a monument. Yeah. So he had a sodomy of the little boy or anal rape of the little boy in 99, the murder of the, of the lady, Indian la- adult lady in 2001, then relocates to Johannesburg mm. and starts off with, uh, with the rapes with children only and murders of, of What is his psychological motivation here? Again, what is he getting you know, out of this? He didn't say. I think. I think it's again power and control. Okay. Um, the, the, his family was interviewed, and they said, you know, as a child, he always, even as he got older, he liked to play with the kids. 
okay. and was very naughty. But I mean, that's not enough to say, oh, no. this is now a guy who's going to develop into a, into a serial murderer. But now the one problem is he's now in custody and he escapes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay, okay. So uh, essentially he was being kept in the... Um, the Alexandra police cells, yep, because I think that's where Pete Bellefeld's offices were okay. at the, the Serious and Violent Crime Unit. And on the 12th of January 2004, he is then taken incorrectly to the um, high court. What, what sometimes suspects would do is when they're being called out to, to go to court on a day, a person would go as a different individual. Okay. So they might say to someone, you're only here for a, a shoplifting and you couldn't pay bail. You shut up. You stay here. I'm going as john makubela today he goes into court i plead guilty here's my 50 rand and off they go so he was taken to the courts incorrectly the cells and bundies it apparently the prosecutor said no he should be sent back to the cells this is the versions we had and he was allowed to leave the sure. courtroom okay. by the court order they did inve- investigate seven court orderlies i'm not too sure what the outcome was that okay. so now of course you can imagine it's a massive manhunt and Absolutely. if you go into the if you google this you'll probably find the, you yes, know, the yes. news articles etc a massive manhunt with sightings from throughout the country where people are running off trying to find him but in reality he'd been arrested four days after the incident after he escaped in johannesburg okay. but still for months this manhunt went on and they're going all over i guarantee you i've just seen sipo dubey here um, but he had been arrested four days later and when he was trying to break into a vehicle and he stabbed the owner of the vehicle who confronted him. Okay. And it was eventually through checking arrest records that Pete Federbelt said, let me see if this guy's not arrested and basically went through the arrest uh, records and found him at, uh, I think, Joburg Prison, Sun City. Okay. So eventually in the end, I think we ended up with a total of 13 victims, males and females. The races were white, black, colored Indian, adults, children. Knife was sometimes used. Blunt force trauma was sometimes used. Um, and, of course, also got the charge of the escaping from, from custody. But importantly for our discussion here, the profile fit the killer. In this case, yeah, it fit in very well. This is probably one of the one of the most accurate ones um, that we have. And as I said, you know, it, it, that's why we started to realize they don't always necessarily help you solve the case. They might be very useful when you're going to interview the guy that we understand the insight and the mind of this person. But also if you look at the United States when they do profiles, let's say, for example, they saw the suspect was driving a red Mazda in this area, white male. It's a lot easier for them to get these records of who all drives red Mazdas in Johannesburg. Well, okay, we've got a thousand names. Who all are white males of this age? Oh, we get another hundred names. And your overlapping list might be of you know, 150 names. The profile is then very useful to say, well, who are we going to start with? You've got 150 names, maybe 200 potential names. How do we, do we, do we randomly choose one and start? And that's when the profile is very helpful in narrowing down and prioritizing who we are going to focus on. But in South Africa, we don't end up with these massive lists of names mm-hmm. for various reasons. So we often, either the first name we eventually get to or the second one is our suspect. So we're not narrowing down. So that's why we, we realize that the more important contribution we can make to detectives is training them beforehand that they know what they're dealing with mm. and giving our knowledge. I always say it's like a hard drive that you want it with full of information that you plug into mm. someone's investigation. Mm. So don't make the mistakes that a rookie would make. We've made them. Mm. Listen to us as how we have solved these cases in the past. And that's really, for me, where the profile in South Africa becomes valuable is that you bring that wealth of knowledge of working on weird and wacky cases to the investigation. Very briefly, somebody out there who's listening to us now who who feels predisposed to this kind of work what would you how would you recommend somebody yeah explore a career and we get lots i mean i get countless emails i feel bad because i often don't have the time to respond to all of them i want to be a profiler how do i get into this 
you know, should I study psychology or not? The reality is in South Africa, the only way you can officially be trained and regarded as a profile is if you join SAPS. Now, my unit had detectives who joined my unit and psychologists. So yes, I kind of would say to people, well, that's your choice. You can go become a detective in SAPS and hopefully transfer into the unit one day. Or yes, study psychology. It's not going to hurt, obviously. And at least you'll have a career path if you don't get end up joining SAPS as a profiler. But you can still get involved in forensic psychology cases, doing assessments for courts and in various different ways and studying crime that you can at least try and satisfy that urge and, and interest that you have, you might not be a SAPS profiler. But there are lots of ways that you can still contribute and do, as I said, interviewing serial murders. You can work in a prison as a psychologist and uh, get to interview lots of obviously very interesting different types of criminals, do research on them, etc., to help us better understand these types of uh, obviously ethical research to help us understand these types of criminals and crimes and the modus operandi, etc., etc. So there are various ways that you can try and live that out with the hope maybe one day of getting a job. Is there yourself. a need at the police service for this for these skills? I mean b- yeah. because we we haven't discussed it yet and we will maybe in mm. later episodes in detail is kind of the status of the mm. the investigative um effort that yeah. saps now. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean we just our unit became more and more busy as the years went by. It is getting bigger that we now have people in the provinces, so the plan is that the unit's going to have fully fledged provincial units that have all the capacities based okay. in each. So yes, it is growing. I hope they continue with that. There's a massive need. We just had more work than we could ever cope with. And who's driving that effort? And is it supported by yeah. the head honchos at SAPS? Yeah, look, I mean, definitely I could say that overall the unit was was always, in my experience, supported by management um, of SAPS and of the division, whether, whether you were based in the detective service under that division or forensics. So yes, um, of course, you know, managers always have to balance up, you know, is our product, do we employ a profiler or more crime scene people? So there's always going to be those budgetary constraints on how much your unit, and we're all competing for for more people, more resources, etc. But I do think that, um, you know, they've recently finally appointed a brigadier in charge since, since I left a couple of years ago. And I think he's a great guy and he's got the right mindset for the unit. So I do think it'll continue. They've fortunately also recently promoted some of the people who've been there for a long time, which hopefully is going to retain that expert knowledge. But they recently now, last week, finished their th- annual three-week training course. It was a great success. The people liked it. So I do think it, it can last but you just don't want to lose all that institutional knowledge. Um, all right. So a very um, interesting episode. I hope it's given you some insight into into the process but that, that goes into creating a profile and how practical a tool this is in the, in the, in the, in the hunting of serial criminals in South Africa. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about serial murder in general in South Africa, um, kind of how the modus operandi of serial killers has evolved over the past 20 to 30 years um, and how policing serials has changed. How and who evolved. is committing these crimes in our exactly, country? Exactly, who is and committing who are the victims, these crimes. Yeah. Um, so please do uh, catch episode three next week. Go online and check out some of the media that we posted um, uh, in relation to, to today's discussion, especially uh, around the Sipo Dube case. So check it out. It's very interesting and I think it'll just give you a, a, an even deeper insight mm-hmm. into some of the topics we've discussed today. Um, tell your friends to catch us on brandlive.co.za or search Profiler Africa on YouTube. And please subscribe to our page. We're also available on iTunes. And you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Simply search for Profiler Africa. Thank you, Jared, for another My very engaging conversation. And um, I'll see you next week. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody, and sweet dreams. <laughs> <laughs>